This is what the word of the Lord says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve his name. Or, sorry, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Let's pray together. Father, this, just as we've been together this morning, reading your word, offering up praises, uh, is overwhelming the the grace the power the glory you have shown to your people throughout history we've looked at different points in time and different things you have done and any one of those occasions would be enough to overwhelm us and yet as we see them in line as a continuous relation wherein you are revealing yourself in christ ultimately by the spirit father i pray that we would just be further in awe that we would be further overwhelmed with your glory, that we would be further humbled before you, that we might find exaltation through your kindness to us in Christ by the gospel. And so we are thankful that your Savior, or our Savior has come, your Son has been sent, that he has died on the cross to bear our sin, to pay our debt, to make us clean and pure and spotless. So help us to walk by the Spirit in holiness, that in all things we would proclaim your glory to this lost and dying world. We pray that you would bless not just our church, but all of your people throughout the world. As so many of us are gathering to worship you today, I pray that you would help us to faithfully worship you, that indeed we would worship in spirit and in truth, and that you would cause your people to proclaim the gospel faithfully to the ends of the earth, that all people might know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been going through a book as a family that is uh, a set of stories all about dragons. And uh, what's really interesting is that this, this book has all these stories about dragons from all sorts of different cultures and even different times in, in history. And one of them that was particularly interesting to, to me was uh, about this this man named Perseus, and it's all—it's a myth. This isn't a real historical situation, so bear with me. But in this story, this 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 man Perseus defeats this evil creature Medusa, and is flying home because he was uh, 
given a pair of shoes that allow him to, to fly. Obviously, this is not real shoes. Fake, fake story here. But he's, he's flying, and he sees this woman who is tied up at the edge of, I think it's the edge of a cliff by the sea. And she's incredibly beautiful. And so he flies over to her to see what's going on. Why is she tied up? Why is she in this place, in this way? And the woman's name was Andromeda. And she was incredibly beautiful. And her parents said, uh, were the king and queen of the land. And they proclaimed her the most beautiful creature on the earth. And she was given uh, to be married to this guy named Phineas. Now, what happened is, because she was declared to be the most beautiful creature, the sea god Poseidon was upset. He had created these nymphs to be the most beautiful creature in all of the earth, and he was offended about what was said about this princess. So he sent his uh, dragon, Cetus, to start uh, terrorizing this country, and eventually it became clear that the only way to preserve the people was to offer up the princess as a sacrifice. And in that moment, what you would expect is that her betrothed would slay the dragon on her behalf, and what he did, does is he runs away as a coward. He's nowhere to be found, and that's why she is there on the cliff all by herself. So when Perseus arrives, what he does is he sees the dragon coming, he shows courage, slays the dragon, and then he's the one who ends up marrying the princess. And it's just interesting because obviously this is mytho mythological and it's from a pagan con context. And yet even pagans can't get over this story, which is that there's supposed to be a hero who slays the dragon and gets the girl, which is ultimately the Bible story. Joe Rigney talks about that dynamic, that that's the Bible story. The king slays the dragon, he gets the girl. If you want a nutshell version of the Bible, there you go. Even pagans can't, can't escape that. That's why we have all these cultures and all these time periods that want to talk about dragons and dragon slaying and all these things because we haven't graduated from it. Whether it's a little kid, a giant kid, whatever it is, we all like these stories because we know this is the story of reality. We know that we need a savior. And, and the real um, hill that we have to overcome is that when you look at these dragon stories, it's always, or oftentimes, it's the dragon is an evil coming to you. And the real problem we have is that the evil is coming from us. We act like dragons on our own. The evil is coming from out of us. So what we need is we need a hero who can do a far greater act of rescuing than just defeating a dragon. We need a hero that can both defeat that dragon, but also stop us and change us from being like dragons ourselves. That's why the Bible story is the only one that actually gives the real answer. Because our hero has come... He has slayed that dragon, he has saved his bride, and he has done it by dying on the cross to pay for his bride's sins and to, in consequence of the act on the cross, give her a new heart that she would act like her Savior, that she would love the Lord her God, that she would love her neighbor as herself. That's what Christ has done for us. That's the better story. So what we're going to consider here at the end of this section in Deuteronomy 10 going into chapter 11, basic main point, God has loved you, so you shall love him. God has loved you, so you shall love him. Deuteronomy, starting in chapter 6, going forward to where we are now, um, and it'll keep going as we go forward into chapter 13, it has been laying out what it means that Israel should have no other gods before me. They should only worship Yahweh. It starts with this section called the Shema, talking about how Israel is to love the Lord their God with all that they are. And through the section that we've gone through from chapter 6 up until now, God has been recounting 
just to summarize, his incredible faithfulness to his people in contrast to the incredible unfaithfulness of his people to him. And so when we've been examining this, we've been seeing God's immense grace toward his people, and that's brought us to this section here in chapter 10. When Israel considers all that God has done for them, the question is, how do they respond? And that's what's proposed in verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So there's there's the question. And what, what I've uh, proposed from a commentator uh, who I think has probably the, the correct structuring of how this section is, I think there's this question and then three answers that each have a doxology that shows God's glory and then a demonstration of that glory that Israel has beheld themselves. So the first answer was, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. This is the right response. It's essentially a response that says, God has given you everything. You are to love him with everything in return. And to further convey why that answer and response is fitting to the question of what does God require, verse 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. If God asks for everything from us, it is only because he has created everything and therefore owns everything. Verse 15 says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Not only has God made everything in existence, this immense universe that we see, he has shown covenant faithful love to these individuals who are simply made of dust. Power and grace mingle together. Certainly this God is deserving of all love and service and fear. He then says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That idea of circumcising their hearts means that they should have nothing to do with sin. They should be cut off from sin and devoted to faithful covenant love to God. They should not be stubborn. They should not be stiff-necked. They should not go the way of idolatry is what we've explained there from verse 16. The problem is there's no instructions for how they're to do this. But verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God achieves the victory for his people. And even when it comes to circumcising their hearts, God is going to achieve the victory and do that circumcision in their hearts. It says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. They are going to become a people who is covenantally faithful, loving God and loving others, simply because God does that for them. He fulfills this command and changes his people that they will walk in this command. And we've been, we've been talking about that tension here. These commands are right, and yet they are beyond any sinful human being to fulfill. And one of the, the things that we've discussed has been how oftentimes, at just an overwhelming frequency, the commands that are given in Deuteronomy are in the masculine singular. There's one man who's going to come and be able to do this on the behalf of the people. We've seen that throughout Deuteronomy. That's going to become very pertinent today as we come to the close of this section in chapter 11, verse 1. So, we're going to start this morning with verse 20. The third requirement that's offered up to the question of what does the Lord your God require of you? 
Verse 20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Israel is told that they must fear the Lord their God. They must be driven from sin and the judgment that comes upon those who walk in sin without repenting, and instead be driven toward the Lord their God. To fear God is to be driven towards God. And as they are driven towards God, they experience his glory and the joy of knowing him. And because of his grace, they don't have to fear condemnation. Fearing God removes the fear of condemnation. And we see that even more clearly as Christians because we see that the condemnation and judgment our sins deserves has been paid for in full so that we no longer deserve them. And that's been done at the cross by Jesus Christ. So we can now, and we were discussing this yesterday, how Hebrews lays this out. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness because of what Christ has done and have an even greater confidence that there is no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. That word for serve is used in Exodus to describe how Israel was subjugated to serve Pharaoh in their slavery. God redeemed them out of that instead to serve him, to be brought out from under a terrible master that they would serve their good and gracious God. And, and that this is a, a beautiful transition is also marked by the fact that this is what Adam was called to do in the garden. He was to work it. He was to serve in the garden and to keep it. Same word for serving and working. To serve God is to be in his presence and to enjoy covenant relationship. Serving God is a blessing. And what's interesting is these two verbs that we've talked about so far, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him. Both of those verbs have been used already in verse 12 here in chapter 10. And now I think what's going on is Moses is reaching back to those two words to give further clarity to what he's already said in verses 12 and 13 about what it means to ultimately love the Lord their God. So he's going to expand on that concept and he's using this repetition to show that he's expanding on it. So he says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and hold fast to him. That phrase, hold fast to him, is used in Genesis 2 to describe how a husband and a wife were to leave their parents' household and to hold fast to one another. Israel has been brought out of Egypt into marital covenant love with the Lord their God. Truly, this is better than serving Pharaoh. This, this relationship that they have with God is intimate and blessed and protective. So they are to hold fast to the Lord their God. And as we consider how this works, this is showing that that covenant relationship from verse 16, circumcised, therefore the foreskin of your heart, circumcised, circumcision was a sign of covenant membership. This is not just a covenant that they're a member of. This is a glorious covenant relationship that they are called to be members of. And what's interesting is this is the first time that we've, we're seeing this, this word, hold fast, used in the book of Deuteronomy. And we were discussing this yesterday in, in study. That word's going to come up a few more times in quick succession right here in this next section, closing out chapter 6 through 13. God's... Essentially, it seems like doing a crescendo to help them understand 
how blessed they are to be in relationship with God. This is a privilege and grace that God has given them. And it's going to be used as we go into chapter 13 to describe, in contrast, how Israel is supposed to not cling to the idols that they will be encountering. They should not hold fast to false gods. They should remain covenantally faithful to their husband by worshiping the Lord their God only. It says, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So when it says that it is by his name they shall swear, that that is similar to what had been said back in chapter 6. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And here's clarity about what that means. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. As you go forward into the prophets, they're going to talk about this, this dynamic of swearing um, under God's name. And the point of it is, is that it seems to be, if you're going to swear, you do so based off of what is the highest authority. Israel has one highest authority. That is the Lord their God. Everything is under his sovereignty. As is, You can look at this in Jeremiah 12 later if you'd like to, but the warning is that they are not to swear by Baal's name. They are swear by God's name. Because God is the only divine. There's only one deity. And their words and actions need to reflect both his sovereignty and his character. That image bearing that we've been talking about. You see as you go into Matthew 5, even in Israel, people will get... Um, they, they would play with how they would make their vows so that they could be less than truthful even as they make their vows. And Jesus has nothing to do with that. Your yes is to be yes. Your no is to be no because you are to, to reflect the God who is truth and who does not lie. He is your sovereign, and you must do things under your sovereign the way that your sovereign has commanded. They are to reflect well on their covenant head by being a truthful people who honors him above all. We're seeing here with this language, this holding fast to God language, that even in the Old Testament, marriage was made to convey a greater reality. Marriage was always meant to be reflective of ultimately God's relationship with his people. When you look at Exodus chapter 24, God is making this covenant with Israel while they're at Sinai. And there's this ceremony in Exodus 24 where there's sacrifices that are made, and then this one blood from these sacrifices is sprinkled on both parties to show that these two separate parties are now one blood together. They are one family. And then after that ceremony takes place, there's a meal that's eaten together to celebrate it. And that's to convey that this new family is now a family because of a marriage covenant. That's the point. Exodus 24 is a marriage ceremony. Yahweh is entering into a marriage covenant with Israel. And marriage is meant to be reflective, ultimately, of God relating with his people, as I said. This is where you see that Israel's immediate unfaithfulness to the covenant, they're going after the golden calf, they're going after idols, is rightly described in Leviticus 17 as whoring. 
They were meant to be faithful to their husband. They were not. And so Leviticus 17 rightly calls this whoring and whoring after demons. This is going to lead to what we talked about from Hosea 2, and you see this in Jeremiah 3. God is going to send his unfaithful bride away eventually in the exile that's coming because that failure that happened immediately at Sinai is going to be part and parcel of how this people continues to walk and betray the Lord their God. This is a problem that needs to be reckoned with. And so what we're going to be continuing to see as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, we're only a few chapters away, but I know better than to promise how long it will take for us to get there. We're eventually going to discuss that it's the king who is going to take these commands upon himself and fulfill them in a way that the people cannot. We'll have more to say about that as we go forward. But what we're going to, just a quick hint, Deuteronomy is lending itself to show that the one who's going to come and be the faithful covenant partner as a human to God as the covenant head is ultimately going to be God the Son. It is God the Son who becomes the Son Israel should have been so that his people would have his righteousness. Elsewise, we would remain unfaithful and devoid of righteousness. Verse 21, uh, and I'm going to credit now before I forget later. Um, we're going to, so just to tell you where we're going, we're going to discuss verse 21 and what we've been talking about and discuss applications to marriage. And I have found Doug and Nancy Wilson to be particularly helpful on this topic. So I want to give credit up front before I plagiarize without crediting. So I'm going to credit now and hopefully not plagiarize going forward. Verse 21, though, says, He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Here's the doxology. They are to fear the Lord their God. They are to serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. And they are to do it because God has done wonderful things. For them, He is their praise. That word for praise was first used in Scripture in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? The same word for praise that we just saw. Doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. This is reflecting on God closing up the Red Sea on Pharaoh's army. You have led in your steadfast love, that's covenant love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That is a bride praising her husband for defeating the dragon and bringing her home to himself through the redemption he's accomplished. And we see this, this dynamic of what we've been talking about with great stories and the Bible's great story. We're seeing hints and, and types and foreshadows of it even here in Exodus going into Deuteronomy. God had conquered Pharaoh and the false gods in Egypt. And Pharaoh ultimately was in and of himself a little dragon and serpent. And you see that. He seeks to kill God's people, killing even infants. He is seed of the serpent. And the irony is he probably wore a crown that had a serpent on it because he's an Egyptian Pharaoh. He both looks and acts like the serpent. And what happens to him? God crushes him. God defeats him. And he does so to get his bride and to bring her to his holy abode, to bring her home. This is what God does. He is the great hero. We see that that problem we talked about, Israel's going to continue in their unfaithfulness. How will they ever be restored? 
and we when we were looking at Hosea 2, Hosea, I mean, he's laying it out. God is laying out the problem here. And yet God is saying, I will go to them. I will speak tenderly to them so that they will call me their husband. He is going to bring them back through the wilderness, through a new exodus. And how is that that God's going to accomplish this when they have no righteousness? And the answer comes, as I was talking about, Deuteronomy 17 is informing the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises that David is going to have a son who will be a son to God. And why that's important language is that Israel was called to be God's son. What, so what, what the language is, why the repetition of that language, it's telling us that the king is going to be what the people could not be. He is going to follow the Torah. He is going to obey the commands of God, and he's going to do it on the behalf of the people. He will establish all righteousness so they can have his righteousness imputed to them. He's going to be that faithful covenant partner. And we see that this is ultimately God the Son incarnate doing the will of the Father. And in that, we see how because the Son of David is going to be a son to God, and that's ultimately God the Son, we see how that Son of David can truly be God bringing his bride through a new and better exodus as well. That he has fulfilled these commands. You see, uh, when we open with Psalm 45, a lot of that marital imagery that you see there is also in the Song of Songs. A lot of the marriage celebration is now getting focused as you go forward in the Bible's narrative on who? The son of David and his bride. Why is that? Because God is going to show his covenant faithfulness as the husband over his people through his son incarnate. That is Yahweh incarnate coming and being the faithful covenant husband and the faithful human partner to God the Father to establish all righteousness. This is profound. It's worth taking Sunday morning to consider, though. This is the glory of our God, to redeem his people. This is why Song of Songs is celebrating marriage, but doing it in a way that looks back to Eden and looks forward to the cross. We see in the Gospels, you see all this bridegroom language used to describe Jesus. It's because he's Yahweh. Yahweh has come to redeem his bride. And that's why when you go into Ephesians 5, Paul is making the point that marriage from the beginning has ultimately been about this gospel work of God to redeem his bride through and in Jesus Christ by the cross. And just as we talked about from Exodus 15, he redeems his bride and he's bringing her home. There's a marriage feast that we are looking forward to as we enter into a new creation. This is that story that everyone can't seem to avoid no matter how much they reject the God that that story is ultimately about. And so we should be profoundly grateful. You see how Israel is extolling the praises of their God in Exodus 15. They're being called to do so again here. How much more so for us who see the fullness of all of this in Christ? It's easy for us to look at overwhelming cultural darkness that's around us and to lose sight of what story we're in. But we can't do that. No, we look to the cross and see that there's no darkness that God has not and will not overcome. And we walk in the power of our God and Savior to similarly overcome that darkness. Whether it's the people who are lost in our culture today, or whoever it is is going to be tomorrow, all of those who resist God and will not repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to go the same way that the Egyptians did and the Canaanites did. God's going to win. 
We do not need to fear them. Certainly there's going to be times that it's, it's worth weeping. There's times to weep with those who weep. There's times for us to mourn certain things. But we don't mourn as those um, who have no hope. We have a sure hope. And so in light of that sure hope, we can even imitate the apostles in Acts 5 and count it a blessing that we would be worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's how glorious this story is. So we should be simultaneously both a faithful bride to Christ and a rejoicing, an ever-rejoicing bride to Christ. This is where marriages are meant to be reflective of this glorious gospel reality. And something I want to discuss now is the unique role that wives have in showing that gospel reality in a way that's specifically encouraging to the church. A wife is meant to reflect the church's role in submitting to her head. And so the point that I want to drive at is ultimately this. So I'll put it in a nutshell first before we dive deeper. The point is this. If a godly wife can so respectfully and fully submit to an imperfect head, how much more so should the church submit respectfully to the perfect head? We, see, we receive an immense encouragement from godly wives. And unfortunately, I think this is a, a, a point where evangelicalism has been weak for decades. Um, there's rarely uh, exhortation or instruction or encouragement or even rebuke given for women within the context of the church. And the problem there is that those women are not blessed through that. Um, I think Je uh, Pastor Jeff and I were talking about this earlier. There might be some sort of hesitancy, perhaps, to say, like, I'm a man who's going to talk about what it means to be a wife and a woman. Well, that, that sounds awkward. But if I'm preaching faithfully, I'm actually just saying this is what God has said. And what a woman needs most is not to hear from other women. What a woman needs most is to hear from God, her creator. That's what we all need. We all need to know what our creator has said. And his words, like we've been discussing in Jeremiah 10, his words, his commands are for our good. So I'd like to take some time to, to look at a, a couple passages in the New Testament that give some clarity here. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm not going to do a, another 20-part sermon series branching off. So we're going to look, though, at a couple passages, and I'm just going to try to aim at just expositing what's there and not giving a bunch of caveats, just expositing and showing what God has said. So I, I want us to all just consider what has God said and to put some of the questions and thoughts we might have on the periphery to the side and just focus on what does God say here. So let's go over to Ephesians 5. And so what I want to do is I want to consider Paul's words here, God's word here in Ephesians 5, to encourage uh, all of us, but especially to, to help wives see what God has called them to and to encourage them to abound in that good work. So Ephesians 5, starting verse 22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So the wife is to submit to her husband just as 
the church submits to the submits to Christ. And the reason is because the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. This is about headship. So this is where we have discussed at different points. Um, I'll just call it the insufficiency of complementarianism. The Bible teaches patriarchy. It teaches that fathers are to rule. The point is not for the man to have everything he wants. The point is to reflect ultimately the fatherly rule of God himself. This is about God's glory. So Paul's conveying that wives are to submit because of the dynamic of headship, of patriarchy. And the comparison here is to submit as the church submits to her Lord. And then what does that mean? Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what does it mean to submit? And Paul's telling us, it is to submit to your husband in anything that is not explicitly sin. Because the church is called to submit to Christ in everything, and he never gives us anything to submit to that is sinful. Paul had said that we are putting on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ is calling his church to follow him in holiness. So as long as the husband is calling for things that are holy and righteous, the wife is to submit in everything. So I know that's a, that's a big statement in a short span of time. Let's go over to 1 Peter 3, hopefully unpack a little bit more of what this means. First Peter 3, verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So there's this, the same idea. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. They're to submit to their husbands. And look what it says next. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So what Peter's laying out for us is that this idea applies not just in the context of a believing marriage where there's a believing husband and a believing wife. He's saying this applies even to a situation where there's an unbelieving husband. And what he's saying is that what the wife is doing in following the commands of God here is so profoundly glorious that the unbelieving husband can be converted, brought from death to life in the gospel without a word because of the godliness of his wife. What God's calling women to do in marriage is, is profoundly impactful. And majestic. This is gospel power at work. Verse 3 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Christian women, Christian women are to be focused on on exuding the beauty that primarily comes from godly character. They are not to be focused on the externals, and they certainly should not go in the way of our immodest culture. They are to reflect the glory of God primarily in focusing on following their Lord and being like their Lord. Verse 5 says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, 
if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter's giving an example here. The submission that a wife is to do is not to be done in a begrudging way. It is to be done in a way that overflows. Sarah obeyed Abraham and respected him enough to be calling him Lord. And consider that with me for a moment. I think it's, I, I want to be reverent, but I do think it's fair to say Abraham was not exactly the best husband we've probably ever seen. You can read Genesis and see if you agree or disagree with that, but I'm going to make that contention for now. I don't think Abraham was the best husband, the best husband we've ever seen an example of. And yet, Sarah not only obeys him, she is abounding in respect to even call him Lord. And the question is, how? And the answer is, she is not viewing her marriage as a contract, where she only renders if things are given to her. She is viewing her marriage as a covenant, where she is committed to being faithful and not waiting for, for this to be given to her or that, uh, th that sort of exchange to take place. She has committed herself to honoring God and fulfilling her covenant vows. It's because of her covenant commitment that she is treating Abraham, an otherwise extremely undeserving husband, in this way. And what you find, both with Abraham and with, I think, Christian marriage as well, is that as the wife commits to her covenant role of respect and submission, that husband becomes more respectable because of her godly conduct and the, the, the profound impact it's going to have. So wives, it's worth considering because we're looking here at this example to, to respect, to submit, and to even honor your husband, calling him Lord. I mean, that's, that's a fine and good thing to do to call your husband Lord. But the bigger point and the more important point is, is this the pattern, this, this respect and submission, is that the pattern of treatment that you have set in your interactions with your husband. And it, it's a good discussion to have. To ask your husband how you were doing in pursuing God's calling in your life and how you have um, been interacting and, and encouraging your spouse in those ways, your husband in those ways. And I know this, I, I, this is hard teaching. I understand that. Um, Peter's actually, I think, admitting that. It says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This calling is large. It, it's, he's describing this as a frightening prospect, and rightly so. To be subject to a man who is sin in his flesh in this way, that's frightening. Peter's also given us the answer to that. Look back at verse 5 with me. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. The, the way in which the Christian wife enters into this task without being consumed by the fear that would otherwise come upon her in it is by putting her hope in God. The Christian wife knows that as she submits to God and then submits to her husband, God will empower her for this task. God will preserve her through this and God will reward her for her obedience in this. So as we go back over to Deuteronomy 10, Wives have a unique role to play. They, they are designed for this vocation of being a helper to her husband. 
And this, this calling is oftentimes uh, slandered in our day and age. But I'd like to just point out, this calling of biblical femininity is what takes Adam's situation where he's alone and it's not good that the man should be alone. It's the biblical femininity that takes that situation from being not good to very good. This is glorious. And because it's in line with a woman's design, it is for her benefit. It is for her good to come underneath God's calling for her. And in addition, this is, like we discussed, this is going to help her husband become increasingly respectable by the gospel impact and ministry it has on them. It's also going to be a means by which the gospel is enacted in front of her children. Even if the wife has an unbelieving husband, her gospel obedience is going to convey the glory of Christ to all in her family in a special way. There's something to be said, too, that as the wife respects and submits to the husband, she is setting the tone for the children to do the same, including to her. More than likely, the wife is going to receive some measure of the same sort of obedience and respect from her children that she gives to her husband. So a wife fulfilling this role is an encouragement to her husband. It's an encouragement to her children. As we've been discussing, it's an encouragement to the church. It's an encouragement to the church that only wives can do. When we look at living examples of what we as a church are supposed to be under Christ, we look to examples of godly women. And ultimately what this is about, it's not about men, it's not about women, it's not even about children, this is about the glory of God. What has God said? Godly wives uniquely uniquely display the glory of God. That is what the church is supposed to be as well, uniquely displaying the glory of God under the headship of Christ. Israel was called to this, even though they ultimately failed. And yet God is profoundly gracious. Look what verse 22 says. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God had made, has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is the demonstration of that doxology uh, that was offered up in verse 21. God is their praise. He has done these great acts for them, and they have seen it. They, they had been a very small, negligible people even coming down to Egypt, and, be, and even smaller if you consider back. The promise to be as numerous as the stars of heaven goes back to Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. And Israel's start is with an old man and old woman who are beyond childbearing years. God has kept his promise in spades. And yet, as we were discussing this yesterday, what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy 10.22 is just the beginning of God fulfilling his promises to Israel. And I, I'm going to just throw out a few interpretations here that are just that, my interpretations. I don't. They might be right, they, may, they might be wrong, but I think we have some hints here to help us see um, how this passage is displaying the glory of God. So here's some thoughts. Why would it be stars that are used to describe Abraham's seed? And I think part of the hint might be that Abraham himself came from a pagan context. He's gone from darkness to light because of God's grace in his life. Additionally, Abraham's call takes place just after the biblical narrative shows us what happens in Babel. 
at Babel, humanity has gathered together. There's no righteous person. There's no Noah in that day. And they gather in their pride, and God disperses 70 nations in their sin. And what we're seeing here is that despite the failure of humanity as a whole, God took this people that was 70 persons, situated them to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth, and now he's been fulfilling his promises in spades, making them as numerous as the stars of heaven. When we're considering what we're called to be as God's people, what we're called to be within the context of Christian marriage, it is not about our sufficiency for that calling. It is God's grace to even bring light out of darkness and to empower us for what he's called us to. He knows we are not sufficient for this calling, but Christ is. And so we pursue faithfulness on his righteousness and his strength. This is where I think this star language is actually conveying the idea in a hint form, like I was mentioning. I, I might be wrong here. We'll see. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. What that means is it is Israel's king who is going to be the ultimate star in this constellation that brings about victory for the people, who defeats God's enemies. This is, I think, why in part we see Jesus' birth signified by what? A star. He is that star who gives light to his people. And indeed, he is the light of the world. God's recounted all of these blessings and graces that he has shown to his people, all of his covenant faithfulness, all of his promise keeping. And then he moves into this conclusion in chapter 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. God had taken this people that were as good as dead because of Abraham's age. He's made them numerous. He's now brought them to the border of this land that he's promised to them. And God has promised that through the fulfillment of these promises, blessing is going to come to all the peoples of the earth. All that they need to do is to love the Lord their God, keep his charges, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. How is this promise going to be fulfilled? God, even with his promises, we were talking about this from Genesis 26. Um, Alec was pointing out how God had made this, this standard clear even to Isaac, that the seed of Abraham was going to have to follow the pattern of Abraham and ultimately keep God's charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. And this is where what we've been talking about with the covenant with David, with Israel's king, comes to the fore. 1 Kings 2 says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, 
saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David's conveying what the hope is with this demand. The demand for perfect obedience is going to come through that one son David will have who will actually fulfill the command. And in 2 Samuel 7, when God makes this covenant with David, David praises God knowing that this grace that's been given to him from God is for all of mankind. It's for all people, including Israel. And so what we're seeing here in, in chapter 11, verse 1, I think Moses is hinting in this direction as well. Like I mentioned earlier, these imperatives, these commands in 11.1, these are in the masculine singular. There's one man who will come and do this, even though the people have failed and will continue to fail. Moses is giving us the hints here, even I believe. Christ has, and we know, we when we look through this passage, as I've hopefully been exposing it faithfully to show this in sermon to sermon, Christ has fulfilled this passage. Verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He has done all of that perfect obedience. He has loved the Lord his God. And in addition, look what it says in verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Christ's obedience and righteousness is so sure that our calling and election is from before God made the heaven of heavens and the earth and all, all that is in it. That is how perfectly he has fulfilled this. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. We have seen Christ come and through his death on the cross, being cut off where we should have been cut off in our covenant unfaithfulness, we have seen him defeat every power, including sin, and through that sacrifice, redeem his bride to himself. He has done this. He has shown himself to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He has shown us this sort of love. It says, love, or, sorry, verse 17. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the soldier, giving him food and clothing. He has given us the bread of life. He has clothed us in his righteousness. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. He has brought us together to be his bride, at, even as we are from different places throughout this world. He has brought this gospel to all peoples. And this is the great story that's laid out here. He has shown himself to be God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, because he slayed the dragon. He has won the victory that we could not win. And as we're seeing here, <clears throat> you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. Christ is, both, as we've been discussing, the faithful covenant partner to God the Father. And yet he is Yahweh incarnate, redeeming his bride to himself that she might hold fast to him. And he has brought about a new and better exodus. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Just like we've been talking about <clears throat> with this pattern in stories throughout time and culture. They can't get past slaying the dragon and that, that motif. We also can't get past the death and resurrection motif of the, of the hero. All of this is bound up in creation, that all things find their fullness in Christ. That's why we can't move on from this. And we shouldn't. It says, Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as 
the stars of heaven. Indeed, we have been made new creations in Christ. We have been made seed of Abraham through faith in him. And so we come to this command here. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, and keep his charges, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments. And we know that Christ has done this. And it's through his purifying blood that has been shed on the cross that we are cleansed of our sins. And it's through his circumcision of our hearts and the regeneration he gives us by the Spirit that we can walk in these commands by his power. Because we have none in and of ourselves. Husbands, this is our calling, what we're seeing here and discussing with Christ. Our authority and leadership is to be used for the ultimate good of those under our care. It is exactly what we see from God, see from God himself, and we must imitate it. We talked about when we were looking at 1 Timothy 5 last week. The principle is clear that Paul lays out. If you will not care for those in your own household, You've denied the face and you're worse, you're worse than an unbeliever. And he is talking about physical bread. When we went through Deuteronomy 8, we said clearly that God laid out that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We must both minister physical bread and meet the needs of our families, and we must also minister the far more important bread, which is the bread of life. We are to use the authority God has given us to lay down our lives for the ultimate good of those under our care. Our role is to reflect the glory of the far greater head who is over the church. That is what we must do. It is good that you ask your wife how you're doing in pursuing God's calling and in loving her sacrificially and leading her in a way that is like Christ. We look at our Savior and we see that he has given all. That he would come incarnate, live a hard life, leading to death on a cross. What more could be given by our King? When we look at the command to love the Lord our God with all that we are, we are simply giving in small return to the one who has given far more to us. And the hope that we have here that he will give us the strength, that he will bring us home, that he will, he will allow us to follow in these commands. And as we consider all of this, and we, we consider God's demonstrated strength to do this, Israel's brought to the edge of the promised land, not by their strength. Surely God will bring us home, and it won't be by our strength either. Let us squarely put our confidence in him and to find joy and, and, and encouragement there.